Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Lagore, and welcome to another episode of the What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. Um, we cover pretty much anything we want to because it's our webcast. Um, and we check out everything that has to do with astronomy to what's up in the to what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks that you might be able to use for your observing and then of course at the end of the month we have a special guest that we have on um, just to wrap everything up for the month so kind of fun um, if you've never joined us before welcome uh, go ahead and subscribe to the channel if you like what you see um, it does help us out helps grow it um, if you ever have questions or maybe there's a topic that we didn't cover or you want us to take a look at uh, doing an episode on in the future, uh, go ahead and email that to support at skywatcherusa.com and title it What's Up so we know it's about the What's Up webcast. Um, but again, every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here uh, on our YouTube channel. And we do appreciate every one of you being here um, this morning um, if it's your first time here welcome happy Friday and of course if you've joined us before thanks for joining us again and spending your Friday morning uh, with us um, just a quick thing for some of you who have watched in the past uh, I know we've had some comments that uh, people tend to get kicked off or something drops or something like that some kind of technical issue um, I have said last uh, our last webcast we upgraded the internet which has helped uh, we did order a brand new computer that's supposed to keep up with the the new speeds um, a lot better so hopefully in the next couple weeks we'll have all that running and things will be even smoother um, than they are now so uh, we are working on all of that but still thank you for spending your Friday morning and putting up with all of our shenanigans that we do um, so this week we're gonna be talking about Milky Way season and nightscapes and all that fun stuff because it's April and April is generally the beginning of Milky Way season and we get a lot of questions this time of year from people about you know what camera should I get what tripod what equipment do I need to take pictures of the Milky Way and it comes up all the time and we figured it'd be a nice uh, recap for many uh, to go over this. So if you're new and you're thinking about getting into nightscape photography, this episode's for you. Um, and if not, then this is recapped for you. But uh, we're going to be talking about all that fun stuff today. But uh, we kind of had a last minute uh, thing we wanted to throw in here. I mean, literally last minute, like 15 minutes ago, last minute. Um, and we thought it'd be cool to get someone else um, on here to share their opinion on uh, things that are needed for nightscapes and that way you can get an opinion you'll have me here but you'll have someone else's opinion too so um, I'm gonna bring my buddy in here um, I'm sure you guys are all well aware of who he is he doesn't really need an introduction but I'll do it anyway so I'd like to welcome Trevor uh, from Astro Backyard so thanks Trevor for joining us this morning how is it going up in Canada <laughs> it's warmer now. We had snow this week, so uh, spring is always a interesting season uh, here in Ontario, Canada. Yeah, it's like 80 degrees and sunny here right now, so. but I'll, I'll be complaining to you when it gets into like June and July and August when it's 100 and knows what degrees outside and you're not mm -hmm. in 100 degree weather, so... 
But yeah, thanks for. Um, I know it was kind of a last minute. It was kind of a what could have been conceived as a joke um, as a last minute addition. But um, you know so much about this because you do it all the time. Um, so it seemed fitting that when you you asked me what's going on this week, um, it seems fitting to have you on this morning actually. So thanks for you know being able a good sport I guess for being able to jump on at the, the last second. Yeah, when I when I heard the topic that you'd be talking about Milky Way season and uh, tips and tricks for you know a basic setup, I knew that. Uh, Hopefully I can provide some value there. So it's, it's a great topic and something I'm, I'm super excited about. Well, cool. So we're going to get started. Um, I have my general PowerPoint, as you guys are all used to here. Um, we're going to go through it slowly, but um, I'll be commentating on it, of course. And then Trevor, if you ever feel like you need to jump in or you want to throw your two cents worth or more than two cents on this topic for sure, um, go ahead and join in. Um, let me see what's going on here we go oh sorry i there think it's because the way the powerpoint is showing um i'll try to make this work it's gonna be it might be kind of strange doing a powerpoint um and this so it might be easier in a way to maybe where neither of us is visible and then we just kind of use our voices in the background um just because it's Kind of a last minute thing so um yeah. trevor and i are going to be here we'll just be disembodied voices floating in the background um so i'm going to go ahead and hide myself and trevor Oops. okay cool first time we've ever done this impromptu so thanks for putting up with us so um Milky Way season. Big question comes up all the time. Uh, what's needed? What do I need to do to take these pretty pictures of the Milky Way? And um, Trevor, you can expand on this um, as well. For me, I and we'll go into further detail like the next tier, like trackers and stuff like that a little bit later. But um, for me, really, you just need a camera. And of course, that camera is going to need lenses, which we'll talk uh, about. And a tripod. So camera and tripod, to me, is really all you need to get started. Um, you, anything you want to add on that? There's there's one missed key component missing from that list. You need a dark sky. Oh yes, yes, <laughs> it, yes. But yeah, I know. I'm just kidding. We're talking gear here. But yeah, with with uh, any any DSLR camera and lens, and even non non DSLRs can pull it off. Um, and a tripod to keep it steady with a dark sky, you leave that shutter open. And, uh, you know, there's some people that have never taken a long exposure image of the Milky Way in the summer before. And it truly is an incredible sight to see, say, a 30 second exposure come through on the screen. Yeah, so that's, that's, I think it's really cool to see people's first uh, experience when they're in a dark sky site, and then they see their first image come up. And it's like, whoa that's amazing blah 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 so um yeah dark skies are an absolute must um which we'll we'll elaborate a little bit on here in a little bit um but let's break down the gear real quick uh, of course the first thing you're going to need is a camera and there's a lot of different cameras you know i don't and trevor you probably agree with this i don't think there's really a bad camera for nightscape work um 
on the market anymore. I think most cam camera manufacturers realize that they, this is a big market and they want to have equipment that supports that. So, you know, any DSLR or mirrorless camera really would do just fine. Um, even some of the higher end point and shoots and some cell phones. Um, I have an iPhone, it does okay, but I've seen some of the better um, phones out there that do better for nightscape work. I'm not sure if you mess with any of those at all, but. No, I haven't. And mine has like a very basic night mode, which essentially, I believe it does some like internal stacking too to remove noise, but you can take like a 10 second exposure and you can see stars and constellations. And I'm sure from a dark sky site, you could probably see the core of the Milky Way too. So I think the biggest advantage, uh, say like a, an inexpensive DSLR has over say a cell phone is that that sensor is uh, going to be much better, much bigger uh, and capable of, you know, capturing plenty of light in a long exposure image where some of those smaller sensors found in say a, a phone camera. Um, it's pretty amazing that they can do it, but they weren't exactly meant to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know that's they're just going to get better over time too because it seems it seems like a cool thing that uh, companies want to do. Um, yeah. And you did bring up a good question. Um, I get this a lot, and I know in the camera world it's always crop sensor versus full frame, and it's like this never-ending spiral of what do I need and which one's better. Um, have you noticed? Um, I haven't noticed that it doesn't really matter as far as the image, the final result that you get. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's funny. That one, that's one of many debates ongoing in the camera world. Um, you know, from experience, I shot with crop sensor DSLRs for a long time, uh, just because they're usually more affordable. Um, and then some of those pro cameras have a full frame sensor. So it, it really is nice to have the real estate of a large full frame sensor, you will get a wider field image, say with your, your camera lenses. I think that's one of the biggest advantages. Say if you're shooting with a 24 millimeter lens on a full frame camera, you're gonna get that native 24 millimeter field of view with a crop sensor, as the name says, it's cropping it in a little bit. So, um, you know, I think you're always gonna appreciate a full frame sensor, but there's, um, there's plenty you can do with a crop sensor as well, and it really doesn't make a heck of a difference um, either way. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, if you guys are um, coming from the photo world and you're getting back and forth between, you know, which one should I get? Should I get a crop sensor? Should I spend money for a full frame? Um, or, you know, I know there's a ton of emphasis on oh, I should really, I should basically get a full frame because that's what, you know, so-and-so on YouTube told me to for whatever reason. Um, it doesn't really matter in the astrophotography world at all. And all you're really getting is more real estate, more field of view. Um, so larger sensors are going to give you more field of view than smaller sensors are going to. Um, but you can also duplicate that in lens um, a lot of ways so you can use the optics uh, to adjust for that so um, when it comes to the camera I would say just get what's get what works for you and you know if that works then great um, or if you already have like a, a crop sensor camera don't feel like you need to go out and drop 
couple grand on a, a full frame because it's not going to give you really any uh, basic stuff at this point. So, yeah, it's funny. I remember when I I started getting into landscape photography and it was daytime landscape photography but at the time i had a crop sensor camera and i i only had a certain lens my 17 millimeter lens and i wanted a wider field of view so all i did was take two pictures next to each other and which is it's so easy to stitch them together and voila you've got that wide field of view so it really doesn't matter at the end of the day that's i think that's important for people to to know is you know if you're getting into astrophotography it's, it's already i think um feels like an uphill battle because it's like oh you need this oh you need that blah 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 blah, blah. and that's just like the list goes on and on and on and on and i think for a lot of people that can get difficult so um it's it's a little um you don't want to push people away from it either um and just to show you guys an example real quick, um, this is a full frame camera versus a crop sensor camera. This is really the big difference. This is an 85 millimeter lens. I just happen to have an 85 millimeter on my camera, so I just picked a focal length. Um, but you can see with Andromeda here, the full frame is just gonna give you a lot more room and that makes a lot more, I should have picked a Nebula or something like that. But um, this just shows you kind of the, the only major advantage to two sensors there so um just just something to take a look at at that point so and i'm kind of messing with some stuff in the background here so we can kind of be on the chat at the same time so uh, bear with me guys um kind of doing this on the, the fly here so um have to figure this out so yeah i the the last slide didn't change i think we're still on the uh it's still you holding the the camera and the lens oh whoops i really wanted to see that in drama <laughs> let me just switch this real quick. there we go ah yes i'll cool. save a lot of the q a stuff till the end here so i'll we'll, trevor and i will come on visually at the end here that. so um so yeah here we go this is the field of view difference between a crop sensor and a full frame that's really the only advantage you're going to get between the two cameras and you can always adjust with this per the lens um, at this point um so anyway moving on here lenses um i'm not trevor you just did a, a really cool video um with your buddy nico and you guys just pulled a yeah, I think a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on the glass. I do. Um, there are lenses that we got up here, the 85 and the 50 RF L lenses are amazing. And they, <laughs> they have a lot going for them. But you and Nico did a video with just a, a Rebel kit out of the box. And I was actually really impressed with the lenses that you got there. So, um, or the images you got, which is the kit lens. So I think that kind of shows any lens will work. Yeah, that, that was a great example of it because that the lens that we use, the 75 to 300, is pretty well the cheapest. Uh, it's one of the cheapest lenses Canon actually has in their entire lineup. It's very plasticky. I think it's $100 or less. And uh, yeah, I was blown away with what you can actually do with a lens like that. 
because um, a lot of it comes down to the processing, right? Even if the, the stars don't look as good or as sharp as they would in another lens, there's a lot you can do to adjust that afterwards. So um, yeah, and I think that's true. Any lens will work, especially for when you get into wide angle Milky Way shots, it's a lot more forgiving um, when you look at the image as a whole. So that's right. Any lens will work, but you know, that being said, if you do want to capture that core of the Milky Way across the sky, like we all do, um, you're going to want a wider lens, something more like 24 millimeters or wider would probably be best. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually helps us uh, transition pretty well on what Trevor was talking about is the biggest thing about a lens is you got to know the focal lengths that what they're going to give you. And I've kind of broken these down into three categories. And I've got some lenses here, um, so I'll probably bring Trevor and I up here real quick um, once we go through it and just talk about some some stuff um, on those lenses. So um, the first selection, I know it goes a little bit wider than this. Um, I was trying to use lenses that weren't going to give you the fisheye distortion, so they have the rectilinear lenses. Um, I know Canon goes down to about 10 millimeter, 11 millimeter, but... Um, I would say about 11 to just shy of 50 millimeter would be kind of your nightscape work. If you want to do pictures of Milky Way and you want to get the foreground, um, you know, probably about 10 to 50 millimeter range um, at that point would work. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the, the wider you're going to go um, is going to help if you do plan on creating a nightscape style image with some foreground. Uh, because of course, it, you know, say at 50 millimeters, that's great. You could capture like say the Sagittarius star cloud, uh, a section of the Milky Way, uh, but it'd be a lot more challenging to include a foreground at, at some of those, the high end, the longer focal lengths in that range. Mm -hmm. um, I know someone was commenting um, and they're basically saying any camera or any lens, it really isn't much help. Um, okay, I, I hear what you're saying on it. Um, basically, what we're trying to say here at the moment um, is you can use pretty much any Canon, Nikon, Sony, any of the major cameras, brands will make a good uh, camera. Um, I'd probably recommend sticking with like a DSLR or a, a modern mirrorless camera from any of the major brands will set you up into a um, a good start for that. Um, most of the kit lenses, like what we were talking about here, they'll get you started to taking nice images. Of course, there's going to be better lenses that you can invest in, which we'll talk in here in a second, that will give you some advantages uh, to that. Um, so just to break that into um, anything. So if you're serious about nightscape photography, look at Canon, Nikon, Sony, Fuji, Olympus, blah, 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 you know, all the major camera companies, something that can do long exposure work, so DSLR or mirrorless, and probably to start some kind of a wide angle lens that's going to give you that, that range that sits between 10 to 50 millimeters. A kit lens is like an 18, what is it, 55, 18, 35. Yep. Um, that's great to start out for nightscape work, especially wide angle work. Um, the next tier above that, I would say, is the wide, uh, field telephoto um, and this is comparing it to telescope focal lengths as well so 50 to 300 is where you're starting to get telescopic in my opinion you're not really 
getting a foreground object and not really worrying about a wide section of the sky, you're now more interested in certain uh, windows in, in the sky and you're probably not incorporating a foreground target at that point at these focal lengths. So, um, and at this point you have to start thinking about adding like a tracking mount, which we'll talk here in a minute, um, about because you're gonna start getting into blurring. Um, and then of course, the above that we start to get to the, I should have put 301 and longer, but um, the actual telephoto and longer, you're working into telescope focal lengths at that point where you're probably isolating one particular um, object within the field. And then of course, um, as I would recommend, uh, 50 millimeter plus, whoever you mess with this a lot more, you probably are gonna want a tracker because you're gonna be pretty limited to that focal length. Yeah, uh, that's right, yep. Everything gets a little bit trickier as you increase that focal length and that zoom. And uh, just for, I, I've learned doing what I do, sometimes people want definitive answers. So just to circle back to that, any camera will work great. If you want the benchmark, the, just get a Canon Rebel DSLR, the entry-level DSLR and the kit lens, the 18 to 55 millimeter, and you can do so much great Milky Way work with that exact kit. So if anyone looking for a specific answer, I can confidently give you that one. <laughs> and then I know people are going to ask, you know, when do I, when will I know I need a tracker? I know there's a bunch of rules. Uh, the 500 rule seems to be a real quick and dirty method where you take 500 and divide it by the focal length of the lens and that'll tell you how long you can go before the stars will roughly streak across. Um, uh, so if you do the math on that, like if you're using a 50 millimeter, you're only gonna get about 10 seconds um, on an image at that point. So adding a tracker, which again, we'll talk about here in a second, um, You'll have to think about that, especially when you're getting into longer stuff. And I know people call in all the time. They're like, hey, I have a 7300. How am I going to use it? It's like, well, that's not really going to be something you're going to just put on a tripod and go for it. So um, like Trevor said, the kit lens, the 1855 or somewhere in that focal length range works uh, really well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, at those focal lengths of, you know, say you're shooting at the the low end of 18 millimeters, you can shoot up to, I believe it's about 20 to 25 seconds uh, before you see those stars really start to trail. And uh, yeah, it, you know, you can use the 500 rule or you can just do trial and error when, when you're out there. Shoot as long as you can before those stars really start to trail. And uh, even on, you know, a lot of the wide angle Milky Way shots um, that you see, if you really zoom in, those stars aren't pinpoints, they're moving slightly. Um, but you can get away with a little trailing and still create a nice image. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, that's where that's where star trackers come in when you really start wanting to collect. You can forget about the 500 rule. You can use longer focal lengths and start collecting even longer exposures because you're compensating for the motion of the night sky, which I believe you're going to be getting into shortly. Yeah. Um, just to add to lenses, um, some people might be curious about aperture. Um, basically how much light a lens lets in. This is normally labeled as the f-stop on a lens. It's kind of flip-flopped on how we refer to aperture in the astronomy world, which is normally the physical measurement of the front optical element, where in photography, um, it's a ratio. Um, so example, if your lens says f4 or f2.8, uh, faster lenses are wider, they're gonna let more light in in less time. 
Um, this gives you shorter exposures. Uh, most lenses will have to be stopped down, however, um, to produce sharp star fields. And this is, I just want to bring this up, uh, Trevor and I back up real quick, because I've got some uh, lenses here to talk about a little bit. And let me drag myself around here. And let me bring Trevor back in here. Um, Sorry about that. We're just doing some impromptu stuff today, so this will get better in the future. Um, so I've got my camera bag right here. Um, so this is one lens that uh, people talk about a lot. This is a 16 to 35 uh, lens. This just happens to be um, a 2.8 L lens. I'm gonna make Trevor a little bit bigger here too, so we can kind of take over the screen. That's actually a lens on my list. I really want that. That's a really great lens there. The 16, 16 to 35, is it? Or 15 to 35? This is a, uh, there is the 15 35 for the R mount. Um, mm -hmm. This is a standard 16 35 uh, L lens. Um, this is an excellent wide angle lens because it gives you that real wide 16 millimeter and the 35 millimeter. It is a zoom. Um, I know we can get into the whole primes versus zoom, but at this, these focal lengths, I don't think it's really going to be a big deal, but um, you use a couple lenses in this focal length range as well. Yep, you're all set. I, so. I got it right here. So <laughs> this has been, this is my, probably my favorite lens overall, but for Milky Way work, uh, it's been so great. And largely because as you said, it's a fast lens. So this is the Sigma 24 millimeter F 1.4. Um, and, you know, as Kevin knows, you know, getting anything F2 and below is really, really fast which is super advantageous for uh, astrophotography. It lets in a lot of light in a short period of time. So you combine a fast lens of F1.4 with a modern camera like the, the R6 I'm using here um, that has those relatively low noise levels at the high ISOs. And man, you can have a lot of fun in, from a dark sky site with a, with a lens like this. But you really don't need to have a super fast lens to get a great Milky Way shot. I've shot plenty of uh, ones at say f4 um, but you're going to need to compensate for that lack of speed by shooting a longer exposure and that's where the star trackers come in so uh, a lens's uh, aperture is a very key aspect of it um, and i know one thing that comes up a lot is you know we spend a ton of money as photographers and I'm, many people we talk to are photographers that i have this in my bag i've already got some nice lenses i want to do astrophotography boom um we spend a ton of money for lenses for daytime that have those fast f-stop to give us the the bokeh and out of focus backgrounds which is funny because that's the last thing you want in astrophotography and a star field is extremely difficult um on a lens um so trevor's got his um 24 millimeter there um this is my fastest lens this is the canon 85 rf 1.2 um these lenses are fantastic wide open um, during the day, but I think what you'll find when you put this on, especially full frame cameras, because they're really critical um, on full frames, is at you'll find at the edge, even wide open, that it might be better if you stop that lens down a little bit to get sharper um, results at the edge of the field, which actually might be an advantage of using like a crop sensor camera um, which has a smaller sensor. A lot of these cameras are actually designed to use full frame. Use a full frame camera on a crop. It actually can take away some of that 
um, at that point. So, um, yeah. And I mean, you could all, you could be shooting with a full frame camera and, and end up cropping the image yourself too. But, uh, that's where it, as we said, it's kind of nice to be able to play with that extra real estate on a full frame sensor. Um, one thing, um, you might not necessarily think of, uh, as a benefit of a really fast lens is, as you said, Kev, you probably wouldn't shoot all the time at that F 1.2, which is just so crazy. Um, but being able to go tap into that mode, say when you're framing up your subject or you're locating objects in the night sky, that fast speed uh, gives you some instant feedback on the display screen because it can let in so much light, you could probably see the brightest galaxies like in real time because that lens is so fast. So even if you're not and don't end up taking your photo at f1.2, being able to tap into that setting is a very, very powerful thing for uh, setting up a, a nighttime image. I know someone in the chat was asking you um, at f1.4, how much do you stop down that lens to get a sharp image? It, so it depends on the shot. So I've shot plenty of images at right at that 1.4 and it all comes down to your level of acceptance of what how the star should look in the image because um, if you're a pixel peeper and you want to see at 100% how good each individual star looks, you wouldn't want to shoot at f1.4. If you're sharing an Instagram photo of the Milky Way seen on a phone screen, um, no one's going to see those imperfections in the stars up close. Uh, so it really comes down to your, your acceptance level. But typically, I stop it down to something more like as far as like f3.2 if I really want to sharpen things up. And that's something you can, that's digital. You can experiment with it. You know, take a two second picture. If it doesn't look great, drop it down. Um, if it really doesn't look great and you don't want to share it with anybody, delete it. Um, but experimentation is really helpful with lenses. Um, the one advantage, just right off the bat, if you have a camera lens that's at f4 or a lot of kit lens start at f3.5, um, which absolutely works really well. Um, the advantage of having a fast lens altogether is, let's say you have a lens that's at f4, it still would probably need to be stopped down to probably 5.6 to get those sharp images at a full frame. So you're you're already stopped to 5.6 at that point, where if you've got one of these lenses that are 2.8 or 1. Point whatever, you're probably gonna stop that 1.4 to 2.8 or 3.2. So it right off the bat, is faster than some of these other lenses but of course with faster lenses you're gonna pay more money for them so it's i wouldn't say rush out and buy the biggest fastest thing you can get right now use what you've got and then see what you need at that point the, the great thing about lenses is that the the used camera market is pretty good you know that a lot of people take care of their gear and uh, it's readily available they hold their value too so um, most of my lenses are still I've started buying some new ones but most of my lenses are still used that I bought on the classified sites got a great deal and I could probably turn around and sell them for pretty much what I bought them for uh, so that's kind of a nice thing about lenses they they last a long they're built to last and what that brings a good point on the used market. So Trevor and I um, both have the, the newer Canon EOS R mirrorless cameras. And of course, Canon, um, when they did that, um, they came out with the new RF mount lenses like the 7200 right here, um, which only works on the R mount. And that's all good. It's an amazing lens. But what the advantage of that is, is 
you have a lot of people flocking to buy the new lenses that they're ditching their EF mount or, you know, Nikon did that with the Z mount. Um, Sony's got their E mount that's been out for a lot longer than these two. But those older lenses are being phased out while people ship to new stuff. So that drops the price of like the 7200 EF 2.8 Mark II, you can go pick up for a lot less than what a, a new RF one would cost. So look for the used market, KEH uh, sells good stuff. B&H, um, a lot of photo uh, shops will have used cameras and lenses, and lenses just last a while. So it's a good investment at that point. Yeah, if you couldn't tell, Kevin and I talk about cameras and lenses, and we could talk about it probably for about 10 hours straight. So uh, <laughs> I think we'll get back to the Milky Way now. And uh, But that's, yeah, you basically got an inside look at uh, Kevin and I's interactions uh, on a weekly basis talking about lenses yeah so i'm gonna make us disappear um and we're gonna jump into the next segment here um now we talked about the camera pretty much any modern day dslr or um mirrorless will work um i'm sorry i skipped someone in the chat there um a nikon d80 it's an older body it will work just fine it'll do it'll probably produce some very nice images um, it might be a little noisy in comparison to some of the modern day sensors that are out there. Um, but if that's what you've got, you're well ahead of many, many people just starting out. So I would always recommend using the cards that you've got in your hand already. So if you have a D80, that camera works, just go out and start messing around with it. Um, and if you find that you want to add something in the future, then great. Um, but on those older cameras um, to make more use out of them. If you are if you know that this is something you're interested in and maybe you wanna get more out of that particular camera body, then maybe look at adding a faster lens because that faster lens will allow you to use the lower sensitivity that's found on those older sensors. You'll get more out of it with the camera body you've got. And then with those Nikon lenses, um, sorry, that's just rambling on with those Nikon lenses. Nikon's done a good job at maintaining their mounts for other bodies. So if you've invested in some good Nikon glass and you like Nikon, you can always just invest in a new Nikon body and use all the cool stuff you just bought lens wise. And there you go. So, but that's hopefully that answers the question about the Nikon D80. So, um, now tripods are, this is a really strange part of, the conversation because a lot of people rush out they buy a really nice camera really nice lenses and then they'll call in and say I'm getting images that are kind of weird and we kind of find out that they bought some $25 cheap little tripod off of the internet and it just doesn't work so um, there's a lot of really bad tripods on the market and of course they will do what they're intended for um, but if you want to get into it, uh, investing in a good tripod is really important. You can have the, and this goes with telescopes too. You can have the best setup in the world. And if your mount or tripod just sucks, it doesn't matter how good your lenses or your camera are. Um, so a good tripod is uh, fundamental. Um, I use Photo Pro. Um, a friend of mine works with them. So I've worked with them. Um, the Mi Photo tripods are good. And of course you have all the high-end tripods. 
just make sure you you get a good solid tripod i don't know what tripods you're using right now trevor but they're they're pretty abundant just but you might have to make an initial investment of like a hundred bucks or so on a, a nicer tripod so yeah, it's a, tr a good tripod is money well spent. It might seem like a lot of money to put out at first, if you, especially if you're spending up to $200, $300 on a tripod. Uh, but I mean, you'll have that for the next decade and, uh, you know, it'll pay for itself over time. So don't cheap out on the tripod. I think that's the, the main thing. Yeah, it, there's so many good ones out there nowadays that, you know, but maybe go instead of going just to Amazon or something and Amazon has stuff on there. Um, you just have to pay attention to which ones are good. Maybe go to a photo store or a camera shop in your city, which advantage to that is you're also supporting your local camera stores. Um, yeah. They'll be able to help you out with a nice tripod. And they generally have a selection of, you know, good starter ones too, of course. Then you get to the big names like Manfrotto and the Sirius Pro level stuff, which work great. But you don't generally need to go that high if you're just getting started. Um, you'll know when you want to get something like that. Um, but they're always going to be there. Those high-end camera uh, companies will always be there to sell you something cool when you need Yeah, you generally get what you pay for in the tripod world. The, the one thing to consider is the overall weight and portability of it. If you're someone that's, say, you know, you know putting it in your backpack and climbing a mountain to get your shot, um, like I know some of you do, uh, you're going to want something probably carbon fiber um, that's lightweight and collapsible because um, some of them can, you know, even if they don't seem that heavy at first, so you go on a long trip with them, they can be, um, get kind of, um, you know, cumbersome. Mm -hmm. I, about. I just got a carbon fiber tripod not long ago and it's much beefier than my original aluminum tripod, which isn't heavy. There's a difference though, um, especially when you've got that strap to your back with, you know, two or three cameras and a bunch of lenses. Um, any little bit of weight is good. So definitely would recommend carbon fiber tripods if if you are a, are a backpacker and you're, you know this is gonna be strapped to your back um, while you're walking up some, and at times could be some long distances or some precarious areas, the carbon fiber ones are something to consider if, if weight is an issue. Mm -hmm. um, this is actually a good question. How do I focus if I don't have live view? Um, the Nikon D70S um, does not have live view. Um, what's your take on those? I know we get spoiled with live view, but. Yeah, I mean, that really is, um, that makes life so much easier because then with the live view, you can not only see it in real time, but you can zoom in to that five and 10 times zoom. And in the case of the Canon EOS RA, 30 times live view, which is so handy for, for doing that. So um, really all you can do is, because um, you can actually, I've focused through the viewfinder before, um, and it's actually, you know, it's not as difficult as it may seem at first. Uh, it's not ideal. Um, it wasn't, those viewfinders were not meant to be focusing on stars in the dark, um, but just use, there are a few ultra bright stars in the sky that will be so handy for you to focus on uh, Arcturus and Sirius and all those super bright stars. You'll really have to 
um, get comfortable in that viewfinder and spend some time focusing. And then a lot of trial and error with exposures, taking a five second exposure, taking another five second exposure, adjusting the focus a little bit, and then switching back and forth between the two to see if that star got bigger or smaller. I've, I've definitely done that a time or two. Yeah, so a batten off mask for your lens might help too. Um, to look through the viewfinder, that's like a little, that's like a filter almost that threads on the front and it gives you some diffraction spikes. But yeah, putting it on a, a bright star um, will work. Um, I know we've got some questions here. I'm gonna try to pound through some of these slides real quick and then we'll try to get to some questions. Um, again, I didn't plan to have Trevor on this morning. It's so awesome that he's here though. Um, so this episode might go just a tad little long. We're going to try to keep it at the hour mark. Um, so first off, I just want to pound through this real quick. Uh, what next? So I've got my camera. I've got a lens. I've got a tripod. Um, go out and start taking pictures. Um, definitely practice from home. Um, don't learn your equipment, and but do it from home. Don't drive out to the middle of nowhere and then not know what you're doing because it'll make your a really wasted trip um, at that point. Um, and as Trevor meant earlier, uh, plan a dark sky outing. So once you practice at home, you know how your camera works, go find some dark skies locally. Uh, take a friend um, if you've never been to that. We've all seen the horror movies that end up you driving down <laughs> a weird road in the middle of the dark. Um, but a dark sky is really where that's going to be at um, to get you the best Milky Way shots. And um, from there, once you know your camera gear and you're starting to take some nice stuff, the next evolution is a tracking mount. And whoever can help iterate on this, but um, a tracker is gonna be a really big addition to your setup um, in the future. Once you've got down the whole Milky Way stuff on a tripod and a camera, the tracker is the next evolution from that. Anything you yes. wanna add on that, Trevor? Uh, yeah, the, I mean, once, once you do get a star tracker, uh, it's really opens the floodgates to astrophotography. It's the single most pivotal piece of gear you could possibly own. So yeah, if you, you start with those longer exposures of the Milky Way, um, but then all of a sudden, all these different focal lengths are opened up to you, um, you know, up to 300, four, even 400 millimeters. Uh, with a star tracker, because of course now you're you're moving with the stars, which is a big deal. Yeah. So um, for those who might not know, uh, ISO is the sensitivity of the sensor. Um, that's kind of just the rough uh, layout of ISO. And then of course you have exposure, which is how long the shutter is opened for a particular image. So when you take a picture with like your phone, it goes click. Um, that's a picture, but in astrophotography, when you go click, it's generally a second or multiple seconds or multiple minutes um, that the shutter is open collecting all that light. So um, a tracker helps with that because as the shutter's opened, it's following the sky so it doesn't blur across the image there. So um, advantage of the tracker, as you see here, it reduces ISO because the higher your ISO or the higher the sensitivity is of the camera sensor, the more noise or grain is in the image and it just looks weird and you have to process that out with the computer. Um, so the less that you can do on that eliminates that. Longer exposures and more of them help do the same thing. I know, Trevor, you, you take a ton of pictures and then you stack all those in a processing software on your computer to give you a final image, which 
allows you to get those nice smooth uh, images that you see on your website and presentations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, long exposure images on, on a star tracker. Um, yeah. So obviously you're, as you're taking these longer exposures of say one or two minutes each, you're collecting lots and lots of light over time. And so going back to that lens speed thing, even if you're using a lens that's at F 5.6, all of a sudden you're shooting for two minutes, you're collecting in a ton of light and way, way more than you could on a stationary tripod um, in that short period of say 15, 20 seconds. So um, yeah, and then the, the whole the, the stacking process is, um, you know, a key part of creating an astrophotography images uh, image, you know, the signal to noise ratio and overcoming the, uh, the noise in your, your single exposures. Exactly. And then another advantage of a tracker is you can start using the longer focal length lenses like a, a 7200, 7300, 100 to 400. And depending on how big your tracker or mount is, you know, you start getting to the crazy zooms like the 150, 600s. Um, just be prepared to probably need a larger mount for something that big. But you can start doing high resu higher resolution stuff and getting bigger image scales because you're using a tracker and the stars are not streaking anymore, you can use that without having the stars streak at that point. So that's the advantage of the, the major advantage of the tracker. We have episodes, for those of you who might not know, um, we have episodes on cameras for nightscapes and tracking mounts in the Star Adventure, which is our tracker um, recorded in the past. Uh, you can always go back and watch those episodes um, from the What's Up webcast. Um, Another thing, because we're plowing through this real quick to get to some of these questions, um, you can also add filters uh, to your camera as well. Um, and there's a couple different filters out here. Um, one of the major advantages to light pollution filters, um, what you see here, this one actually threads to the front of the camera lens. Uh, this is from uh, Nisi. This is their natural night filter. It works really well. Um, it allows you to get out more often, go in your backyard or shoot in less than ideal conditions and still get some nice images out of it. Um, so a big advantage of using uh, light pollution filters. I know Trevor, you use some specialty filters that actually go into the camera bodies, um, which can be more selective of certain wavelengths as well as reducing the light glow from the cities as well. So. Yeah, the those the clip-in filters for say a DSLR are handy if you you know like to use different lenses. Um, you can use it with your telescope as well too, but they, they just sit right in front of the camera sensor. So those clip-in filters are handy. Um, but although I'll say if if we are talking Milky Way photography, I've always found that uh, you know best case scenario no filter in dark skies uh, when it comes to the Milky Way because. You generally want to capture those the nat as natural looking image as possible, the natural star colors and the beauty of the night sky. But you can definitely have fun in the backyard with filters too. Um, and uh, it's, it's a lot more challenging though, especially when you get into the wide angle night sky shots from a light polluted area. Yeah, you can get some weird things that go on with filters um, at wider angle lenses. Um, so we're going to jump into QA real quick, just, just to finish this up real quick. If you liked what you see here, um, thanks to Trevor for spending the, the morning with us on an impromptu, uh, get together. Uh, this is the Skywatcher What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. 
If you like it, go ahead and subscribe. If you want us to do a particular episode on something, write to us, support at skywatcherusa.com. Title it, What's Up? And we'll take a look at that. Um, but that pretty much wraps up the presentation portion of preparing for the Milky Way season. I hope there was some knowledge that you got from this. Um, if you have any questions, again, just email us. Um, next week, we have a special guest, our true end of the month, uh, special guest. This is Alan Hale. He's the Celestron chairman emeritus of Force Celestron. He's been there for decades uh, from the beginning. So he's going to give us a crash course history of Celestron from its beginnings. Um, so he'll be really cool to have on. So join us next Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific to have Alan on there. And now I'm going to open the floor real quick for Q&A um, on anything that you guys might have. I'm gonna bring Trevor back in um, so you can see our faces. I will bring myself back in and we are happy to answer any questions that you guys might have. We've got 10 minutes. Uh, actually crammed through that pretty quickly. So um, first we answered a bunch of stuff. If you have more questions, please write in. Our moderators will get that over to us. So I'll start going through um, what I've got here. Uh, our mirrorless, Cameras better than DSLR in regards to astrophotography. I'm I don't know that there's any direct um, advantage like one or the other. Um, it's just a different technology, really. It, do is there an actual reason why it's you know physically better to have a mirrorless camera than a than a I mirror? you know right now I don't think so. Um, newer cameras are always going to have better processors on board. So this is the EOS R and this is the EOS 60D, 60DA. And we're gonna talk about modified cameras. I know there's some questions about modified cameras. We're doing a whole episode on those next month. So that's already scheduled. You can see that out there. So I'm not gonna get into modified cameras, but um, you know, big advantage of, yeah, the mirrorless cameras is they're just thinner. They're a little lighter but it really has nothing to do with their image quality. Um, the newer cameras have better processors, better noise control. Um, so if you compare to EOS R to a 60D, that's, I don't even know how many years apart those are. They're, it's It produces cleaner images in the R, but that has nothing to do with the fact that it's a mirrorless, because if you had like a 5D, 5, D Mark IV, it would still be better than this, or a 90D would still be better than this. It's just because um, a processing thing. Um, oh, Richard's here. Richard writes in the chat. Um, he did bring up a good thing. Uh, one advantage of the mirrorless is there's no shake. If you're on a tripod or you're on a lightweight tracker, when the mirror goes up, it's a lot of hardware moving in the camera, as I'm throwing multiple cameras around. Um, there's a lot of moving parts in there that might shake the image um, when you finish the shot or when you start the shot. So an advantage of the mirrorless cameras is they don't have that hardware. Um, but that would basically be the most fundamental thing, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and and a lot of those those uh, DSLRs actually have a setting where you can turn it off. So it's it actually, it just stays open and you don't mm -hmm. get that subtle vibration, but not a huge deal. And I think, the moral of the story is it really doesn't matter either. It doesn't really affect anything. Um, just It just seems that's the way that the technology is going these days, the newer cameras. Like Canon's just going all in on mirrorless, and it's just the way things are now. Yeah, it's, and that's a big trend from just the photo world. But in astrophotography, it, it 
doesn't really do much for you. So, because let's say five years from now, the R, there's going to be a way better camp. There's already a better camp. So, um, the R5 and R6. Um, so, you know, the cameras are outdated the minute you buy it. So, that's just the reality of it. Um, but there's no major difference for astrophotography between DSLR and mirrorless. Um, for a tracking mount setup, are there any disadvantages to using a tripod extender? Um, so pushing your, your tracker higher up, um, you can have some vibration issues as it goes through the leg. If there's a breeze, it might not be as stable. Um, it really depends on how solid the tripod is. Cause I've seen some photo tripods that look like a telescope tripod and it would be crazy. So I know you've yeah. got a pretty solid tripod, so but I don't think there'd be a problem with an extender if it's got a rigid tripod underneath. Yeah, I mean stability is is so important when you're taking these long exposure tracked images. The slightest, even the wind can affect your shot. So uh, if you can have that lower center of gravity, it's always going to be better. Um, but yeah, there, I'm sure there are some really robust tripods where that's you raise that center column and it's still solid, but. Um, typically the cheaper ones, yeah, it's going to be extra wobbly if you, if you do that. So you want to keep it low when possible. Here's a question for you, Trevor. You think you might know more than this. Can you tell us how to manually dither? How many times do I have to move my camera around or avoid walking noise? Do I have to move them both the right ascension and the declination axis? Man, there, so there's nothing more, you know, upsetting then you, know, you take all these exposures, say you get you know, three hours worth of exposures, tracked exposures, um, say in the situation like um, when I used that kit lens, the 75 to 300 on the Witch Head Nebula. If I didn't manually dither, there's a good chance that with just some slight drift in there, I would have seen that walking noise pattern. And it's just heartbreaking to see it when you see your stacked image and it's got the walking noise in it. Um, because there's really not a lot you can do after the fact. So that's where dithering comes in. And if you're using a star tracker and you're just out in the field, a remote shutter release cable, you're not dithering with software. There's no software control ditherings, but you can do it manually. And all I do is shift the frame around ever so slightly every few exposures or so. And even if it's like every 10 exposures, you will see some benefits from manually dithering. Um, and the way you would do that on say the Star Adventure, there are those slow motion controls, those, those two buttons, I, I guess it's just an RA, you're just moving it slightly. Um, just do a slight adjustment there, use the live view, there they are. Change the frame up and you do wanna do it in both axes. So you're gonna have to be very careful um, because you know with these star trackers you usually want to set it and leave it without messing anything you don't want to knock that polar alignment out but you can carefully adjust the declination as well um, using those controls the declination knob on the uh, on the star adventure as well so essentially you just need to shift that frame up and down left to right um, a few times throughout your entire imaging capture process and that's worked for me it's it's so simple but it works um, next question, uh, how do you focus with a narrow band filter? That's a great question. That gets, that's something that not everyone thinks of. You know, when, you've, when you've, you're shooting unfiltered, 
Um, you're, you can let in a lot of light. You see plenty of bright stars. You can finding your objects is a lot easier. All of a sudden you put an HA filter in there, even if it's something a little more open, like a 12 nanometer clip in HA filter, you only see the very brightest stars in the live view, if anything at all. And there's a good chance that the direction of the sky you're shooting in, you don't see anything in the live view when you've got that narrow band filter in there. So that's where the trial and error of test exposures really comes into play. So do your initial focus on a bright star. The brightest ones will come through. Then you need to move over to your, your target in the night sky and then take up to a 30 second exposure before you start to see it kind of reveal itself um, through that narrow band filter and then make adjustments to, to framing it up after. But yeah, focusing and framing with a narrow band filter is going to take some time um, if you're not using, uh, you know, a camera control software that you say plate solves for you. If you're doing it manually, it's going to take some trial and error with test exposures. Um, someone mentioned next version of the Star Tracker auto dither. Um, if you have a 2i or Star Adventure or app, or this is the Windows app and my head's in the um, astrophotography, dither range, like dither range, and then you'll have to customize how many arc minutes you want that to move. It depends on the focal length, but you can tell, tell the Star Adventure 2i and the minis to dither, um, but you're going to have to experiment a little bit with that. So we've already done that um, for that, so you're all set for the um, auto dither stuff there real quick. Um... We're running out of time. Let me get some other questions in here. Any comment on using a tracker and or stacking, but you have a foreground object. So uh, I found that there's a great software tool and it's actually free. Um, Sequator uh, does a great job of stacking, separating the foreground from the sky and actually stacking it together and producing pretty amazing results. Um, so that that's more in the you know post-processing side of things. But um, when you're in the field, generally you want to take your your track shot of the night sky and then take separate exposures, still exposures, non-tracked of the foreground, and then blend those together in post. That's that's the technique that most people use. And um, oh, here it is. Um, what's up? So out on wait. Um, so this is Sequator. Um, there's a, just a quick download on there. Just Google Sequator. Um, that's what Trevor's talking about. Uh, I'll have to mess with it. I've never tried it, but yeah, generally that's a post-processing technique where you're trying to get everything the way you want it to look when you're doing a foreground and stacking a star background in there. So that's a processing witchcraft technique. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, let's see, for track pictures at around f2.8, 14 millimeter, what ISO and exposure would you use? I can get up to 120 seconds on my Star Adventurer. It's a pretty wide, fast lens at that point. Yeah, it really depends on uh, your, your ISO. If you're from a, you're shooting from a really dark sky site and um, say the noise profile of your camera shooting at, I found that the Canon EOS RA shooting at ISO 3200 um, is the sweet spot, which, you know, sounds kind of high, but those images um, aren't too noisy for my liking. Um, so really, especially that ISO setting, uh, it's personal preference. Usually you're going to be in the range of 
uh, 800 to 1600. Um, but really there's so much you can do to reduce noise after the fact and with the stacking that I would say with that, if you're from a dark sky site, I would probably be shooting somewhere around the, the ISO 1600 mark, I would say. Yeah, and you can always take uh, dark frames and bias frames those to average out the noise in the post-production um, with that too. Um, but if you're doing 120 seconds at 2.8 in a dark sky site, the images are probably sweet. So um, yeah, what Trevor's saying, right in that range there, um, 800 to 3200, 6400 on a modern day camera, you could even do that, but you don't have to shoot you don't have to run the ISO so high in a dark sky site while you're on a star tracker. That's the advantage. Here. Um, we have one question left and we're going to lock this down. Um, do we have to use light pollution filters in a Bortle 5 or Bortle 6 sky? Probably not so much. They do help. Um, I have the, I like the Nisi Natural Nights. This does a nice job of making it look, I'll have to, I'll have to send you one of these at some point or have you play with one of these trevor um these do a nice job in those those average light polluted locations it's probably not as crazy um as some of the more dedicated ones that we use in astrophotography i think you use like an l pro or the cls ones um yep. those those are very nice they're very specific for um astrophotography but the nisi ones do a nice job too if you're looking for just a little bit of help but you can also do some stuff in post-processing too but better to do things optically um, as much as possible on there um cool well we just blew through an hour <laughs> um trevor thank you so much i know this was really impromptu um but thanks for being on here thanks everybody who's watching um today uh we'll have trevor back on in a little bit more polished version um but uh Thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, I hope you have a great weekend. Go out and use your stuff if it's clear and don't freeze to death if it's snowing. Um, but yeah, come on out and um, come on out. Go on out, share your stuff. Um, but yeah, be safe. And uh, again, Trevor, thanks for sharing your knowledge and um, being on here. And if you guys haven't, which I'm sure you have, go to Astro Backyard, check out Trevor's videos. How often are you doing videos now? I, I try to do one 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 a week, but uh, they they're time consuming. <laughs> I'm not going to get one out today, and it kills me. Oh, I was on a roll of getting one out every Friday. But yeah, check out Astro Backyard. Subscribe to their channel. Um, subscribe to our channel if you like these videos. We'll see you guys next week. Um, Trevor, have a good weekend, and we will see all of you next Friday. So take care, everybody. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>